Welcome to Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Kelly Gurner, and I'm here with my co-host, Reagan Duffy. Hello, everyone. Welcome, Kindred Spirits. Okay, Reagan, so it's the first week of January, and I think at this time of year, I often try to come up with like a theme for the year or my word of the year. I don't know if this is something that you spend a lot of time thinking about, but this year, I think that my word of the year, my sort of guiding principle is going to be peace. I love that. Yeah, thanks. And I don't mean peace in like a, I don't know, like ostrich putting the head in the sand, non-confrontational sort of a way. I mean it more in the idea of I'm going to like preserve my peace at the expense of getting involved in, you know, other people's drama, whether that's Mm. at work or family or personal life. And just sort of prioritize my own equilibrium above all of the hecticness, the busyness that can sometimes surround us and that I think I oftentimes get far too wrapped up in. I know my tendency is to get excited about things and say yes to everything. And so this year I need to remember that my guiding principle is peace And if something, even if it sounds like a good idea on paper, is going to rob me of my peace, I need to say no. I love that idea. And I was thinking about this. I think my word for this year is balance, which I guess I try and strive for every year. I know. That that may have been my word of the year for multiple years. I don't do this every year, but when you and I end up spending like New Year's together, this is often the discussion. So I feel like I'm that that's always something I'm striving for. And realizing as I'm trying to find that sweet spot between work and home stuff and taking care of things at home and my daughter's activities and being there for her and creative things that I want to do and my relationship with my husband and friendships and rest. Oh gosh, the rest. That's the hardest part. (laughs) Right, right. Like trying not to feel guilty when you do rest, but then it always feels like you're missing something. Mm -hmm. But then when you try and do everything, you just get, you know, knocked off course and every time I feel like I have a handle on balance where I'm like, I got it. I got it. All of the balls are are like perfectly aligned and I'm juggling them all. Then I lose it again, which I suppose is par for the course. I mean, I don't think anybody can live in a state of perfect balance all the time. So maybe what I really need is to be focused on trusting that I'll regain balance when I lose it and get overwhelmed and that it's not a steady state of being. It's something that you have to be actively working to maintain every year. I don't know. You are so wise. I truly, I'm just over here completely impressed and a little overwhelmed by that idea because, and I'm thinking about it with respect to my word too, because, you know, expecting to maintain total peace and uh, equilibrium throughout the whole year is really pretty unattainable, right? And so just the idea that, okay, that's just the guiding principle that we're working toward, knowing that it's not going to be attainable or achievable, but it's just something to keep our eyes on and focus on. I think maybe that's the best we can do. Right. And reminding yourself that you haven't failed if you fall out of balance. It's just something that you keep working towards again. Yep. Yep. Okay. 
We'll do our best. Right. Here's to 2023. Well, today, let's move right into the meat of this episode. And today's kindred spirit is none other than our heroine herself, Anne Shirley. Yay, Anne. We have so much to say about Anne, about her journey and growth throughout this book, that we are going to have three episodes about her. Of course we are. Anne is the reason we read these books. She's the inspiration for readers everywhere and her iconic mix of imagination, impetuousness, and positive genius for getting both into and out of trouble has been immortalized for well over a century with new fans every year discovering her. So why is Anne such a beloved figure in children's literature? One of the things we love about Anne is how human she is. She makes mistakes, but learns from them. She's dramatic and often unintentionally funny, and she learns to laugh at herself. She's flawed, and we get to see her grow into young adulthood the way that most of us do, in an uneven and rocky way, bumping along through misjudgments and problems sometimes of her own making, but with a generous spirit, a true love for the people in her life, and a willingness to own her own discomfort. So let's talk about Anne's main themes and growth arcs over the next few episodes. For our quote of the episode, here's a bit of the Anne mission statement direct from the girl herself. There's such a lot of different Annes in me. I sometimes think that is why I'm such a troublesome person. If I were just the one Anne, it would be ever so much more comfortable. But then it wouldn't be half so interesting. In our story club today, we're talking about Anne, and we're talking about the two sides of Anne's obsession with beauty. The negative side, the side that Marilla is constantly trying to moralize out of Anne, is what everyone in the book refers to as a vanity. And the flip side of that vanity is Anne's deep appreciation and ability to notice the beauty all around her, whether that's in nature or in other people or in art, music, or literature. This is one of Anne's most distinctive and persistent character traits that sticks with her all her life. Early on in the book, Anne shares with us essentially her thesis statement about how vanity and her love of beauty are connected. Marilla says, You shouldn't think so much about your looks, Anne. I'm afraid you are a very vain little girl. How can I be vain when I know I'm homely? protested Anne. I love pretty things, and I hate to look in the glass and see something that isn't pretty. It makes me feel so sorrowful, just as I feel when I look at any ugly thing. I pity it because it isn't beautiful. We want to talk first about what is often termed Anne's vanity. And I think Maude uses the word a little bit differently than we would commonly think of it today. Vanity here means focusing on someone's, particularly women's and girls, outward appearance. Anne is indulging in vanity even when she's making negative remarks about her own looks, not just when she is unduly proud of her appearance. Just wishing she were prettier is vanity. That is so wild to me. Growing up, I felt really connected to Anne because of how consumed she was by her appearance. I felt exactly the same way. I thought about how I looked constantly. And I think that's pretty normal for adolescents, right? It seems like Marilla has undertaken quite the challenge if she's trying to keep a young girl from thinking about her looks altogether. Totally agree. I was definitely focused on any flaws I thought I had. They feel magnified when you're a teen, and you're sure everyone is noticing everything about how you look. I think it's part of growing up, as well as part and parcel of growing up in a society that focuses on women's and girls' looks. The church may preach all it likes, but society is judging girls with how they look, 
And in Anne's case, that affects marriageability. And even 100 years later, girls' popularity, acceptance, desirability, and worth are still bound up in how they look. Yeah, Anne's struggle with her appearance strikes me as very contemporary, even now. Yes. So very early on in our acquaintance with Anne, we learn that she considers her red hair to be a burden inflicted upon her. In that first buggy ride with Matthew, Anne talks about how ugly she is three different times in an eight-mile drive. She makes bare mention of being orphaned as an infant or the terrible neglect she suffered from being passed around as unpaid help, and instead she focuses on her red hair as the cause of her misery. She explains that she can imagine almost anything else away, but she can't imagine her red hair away, and she calls it her lifelong sorrow. It's easy to read between the lines that Anne somehow equates being beautiful with being loved and being wanted, and even with being good. And this strikes me as very authentically human. When we experience terrible things in childhood, we often don't have the intellectual or emotional capacity to understand why those terrible things are happening to us. So as children, we invent our own stories to explain it, usually stories that center some fault or flaw in ourselves. For Anne, it's not that she had a hard early childhood because her parents died and she was taken in by cruel people. The story she's told herself is that she had a hard childhood because she's homely and has red hair, so she isn't worthy of love. When Anne says that she feels sorrow for any ugly thing, what she's really saying is that she's sad that ugly things cannot be loved. In her first conversation with Marilla, when it's revealed that the Cutbert sent for a boy, not a girl, Anne says, If I was very beautiful and had nut brown hair, would you keep me? Marilla, as we know, doesn't care what Anne looks like. She sent for a boy because they wanted help with the heavy chores on the farm. Anne's hair color has absolutely nothing to do with it. But to Anne, it's her red hair that she blames for all her unhappiness in life. Marilla asks Anne about her early life, and Anne shares this about her infancy. Mrs. Thomas said I was the homeliest baby she ever saw. I was so scrawny and tiny and nothing but eyes, but that mother thought I was perfectly beautiful. I should think a mother would be a better judge than a poor woman who came in to scrub, wouldn't you? I'm glad she was satisfied with me anyhow. I would feel so sad if I thought I was a disappointment to her. Mm. Doesn't this just break your heart? It really does. The only thing she knows about her babyhood, per Mrs. Thomas, was that she was an ugly baby, but her mother thought she was beautiful. Mm. It's so easy to see how Anne has linked beauty and being loved just from this little anecdote she shares. Mrs. Thomas didn't love her or care or nurture her, and Mrs. Thomas thought she was homely. Her mother loved her and thought she was beautiful. If that's what you know about yourself and your beginnings, we can see why Anne's dissatisfaction with her looks is a driving flaw in Anne's growth. Mm -hmm. I think this is the very core of the loss her parents left in her life. From a child development point of view, a strong relationship with primary caregivers early in life is what helps kids develop a stable sense of self. We need to know that we are loved for who we are and no matter what we do at an early age. That's what gives us the foundation to build our sense of self on. It's clear that Anne never got that, and it's a testament to her resilience that she's as open and trusting and true to herself as she is. But if Anne's parents had lived, she could have grown up knowing in her bones that she was loved exactly for who she was in that moment and would be in the future. Her red hair might have bothered her because, hey, society will comment on how you look no matter what era you grow up in. But she wouldn't have to look for reasons why she was unwanted. 
If she had parents to tell her she was beautiful, adorable, clever, joyful, and good every day, she wouldn't have consistently doubted herself as we see that she does throughout this book. Anne has been told very few good things about herself, it seems. And what she has been told is that she's homely and red-haired and troublesome and a burden. It's not hard to draw a direct line between how she looks and all the rejections she feels. It's so heartbreaking to me to think about what Anne's life might have been like had her parents survived. It's interesting that though Anne bemoans her own looks, she can be somewhat shallow in judging other people as well. She loves having pretty friends, and she bemoans Charlie Sloan's goggle eyes and Moody Spurgeon McPherson's sticky out ears as reasons that she wouldn't want her name written up with theirs. And I think that connects back to that story she's been telling herself, that beauty is lovable and ugliness isn't. And since that message is often reinforced by society as well, there's no one, other than Marilla, I guess, who thinks that Anne shouldn't notice physical attributes at all, to tell Anne otherwise. I think that this is something for us to watch out for as we continue reading Anne's stories, whether she grows out of her association with beauty as worthy of love and ugliness as unworthy of love. Because I think in this book, she certainly makes progress there, but I even think at the end, you do see that her emphasis on beauty and conventional beauty is so important to her. In fact, Anne delights in the fact that Diana is conventionally pretty. She asks Marilla, what is Diana like? Her hair isn't red, is it? Oh, I hope not. It's bad enough to have red hair myself, but I positively couldn't endure it in a bosom friend. Diana is a very pretty little girl. She has black eyes and hair and rosy cheeks, and she is good and smart, which is better than being pretty. Marilla was as fond of morals as the Duchess in Wonderland and was firmly convinced that one should be tacked on to every remark made to a child who was being brought up. But Anne waved the moral inconsequently aside and seized only on the delightful possibilities before it. Oh, I'm so glad she's pretty. Next to being beautiful oneself, and that's impossible in my case, it would be best to have a beautiful bosom friend. This sounds kind of appalling to hear it read out. Anne doesn't ask anything about Diana's personality, (laughs) what kind of friend she might be. Nope. (laughs) For a kid whose only friends have been an echo in a valley and her own reflection in a glass, I suppose it only makes sense that she can't truly imagine what a friend is really like, so she focuses Mm. on what she is great at imagining, what Diana looks like. And since being beautiful is to be loved and wanted, Anne knows that she will love Diana. Oof, I have to admit that this does hit close to home for me. (laughs) I experienced a lot of shame and fat phobia by growing up as a fat kid, and I know I was always really reluctant to be too close, too friendly with other fat kids. It just seemed like any bullying I was experiencing would be doubled. So out of a sense of sheer self-preservation, I did my best to surround myself with conventionally attractive and thin kids, especially when I was right around Anne's age. I did grow out of this tendency by high school, thank goodness. (laughs) But I can see why Anne, who is so sensitive about her looks, would want to be friends with a beautiful child like Diana. We see throughout the book that Anne's sensitivity regarding her hair and her looks drives several of her biggest temper flares and is directly responsible for at least one of her biggest scrapes. This is when Mrs. Lynde very insensitively calls Anne homely, scrawny, and with hair as red as carrots. And Anne flies into a justified temper at this and yells at Mrs. Lynde. And then, of course, when Gilbert calls Anne Carrots, she smashes the slate over his head and spends five years holding a grudge. Anne is so angry because they are both calling attention to the thing that not only Anne dislikes the most about herself, but the reason that she's decided she's most unlovable. 
Anne quickly gets over her anger with Mrs. Lynde, in part because Mrs. Lynde offers her the hope that her hair will darken to auburn as she gets older. Oh, I could endure anything if I only thought my hair would be a handsome auburn when I grew up. It would be so much easier to be good if one's hair was a handsome auburn, don't you think? As Anne and Marilla talk about the incident with Mrs. Lynde and the subsequent apology, Marilla reminds Anne that she should control her temper in the future. That wouldn't be so hard if people wouldn't twit me about my looks, said Anne with a sigh. I don't get cross about other things, but I'm so tired of being twitted about my hair, and it just makes me boil right over. Do you suppose my hair will really be a handsome auburn when I grow up? I understand this feeling so well. I remember being a kid and absolutely just fantasizing about what I was going to look like as an adult. Did you ever do that? Oh, yes. I was so certain that by the time I was grown up, I would probably look a little bit like the actress Kate Winslet. Because do you remember how in the 90s we all thought she was fat? (laughs) Just bonkers to me. Absolutely bonkers. But I was okay with that, right? Because she was still accepted as being so conventionally beautiful. So tell me, when you were little, did you also think about what you were going to look like and what did you think it was going to be? Oh, yeah. Interesting question. So first of all, I'd love to scoff at the idea that Kate Winslet was somehow some great plus size breakthrough. Oh, I know. (laughs) But over 20 years later, I'm not sure we've progressed that much farther. I know. It's a work in progress. Yeah. I do remember someone once told me I looked a little like the girl in the movie The Cutting Edge, Moira Kelly, and I clung Mm. to that idea as a lifeline. Oh, well, she was so pretty and I actually totally see it. Yes, I think that's right. So as we talked about in Marilla's episode, church teaching at the time often focused on vanity as a sin and that people should be thinking of higher good rather than how someone looks. And that's one of the ways that Marilla tries to bring up Anne by redirecting her away from thinking about physical appearance to more substantial matters. Anne's vanity is often cast in contrast to Marilla's practicality throughout the book. Marilla doesn't often care how something looks as long as it's functional, whereas Anne wants things to be beautiful and fashionable, often because she wants the outside to match the inside. Marilla makes Anne neat new dresses after she arrives at Green Gables and can tell that Anne is disappointed with their simplicity. She tells Anne, I don't believe in pampering vanity. And while Anne is grateful for the new clothes, she responds with, I'd be ever so much gratefuler if, if you'd made just one of them with puffed sleeves. Puffed sleeves are so fashionable now. It would give me such a thrill, Marilla, just to wear a dress with puffed sleeves. Well, you'll have to do without your thrill. I haven't any material to waste on puffed sleeves. I think they're ridiculous looking anyhow. I prefer the plain, sensible ones. But I'd rather look ridiculous when everybody else does than plain and sensible all by myself, persisted Anne mournfully. Well, this very much encapsulates the tension between Anne and Marilla that runs through their relationship in the early years. Anne wants to fit in, to belong with all the other girls her age. How relatable! Yes! Don't most tween and teens want that very same thing? It might not be puffed sleeves now, but most generations have some sort of fashion that older generations think is ridiculous. I mean, 80s and 90s fashions are coming back, and they were most definitely ridiculous then and now. Oh, I don't know. I kind of disagree. I love seeing some of those fashions cycle back around. Every time I see like a teenager in those big stompy Doc Martens that I used to love, I just grin. And then I, of course, I also remember what a beast those shoes were to break in. Doc Martens, maybe. 
but acid wash jeans are still a hard no for me. Oh, shudder. <laughs> also, do you remember how uncomfortable jeans were before we started adding stretch to them? Oh, I know. Gosh, we are just punishing ourselves. We really were. Also, I'm still pretty appalled by 80s hair. I desperately wanted a perm at the time, but thank goodness my mom vetoed that. Okay, that's funny because I do see a lot of those super big, curly, high volume 80s cuts coming back in. And I'm just remembering how much it took to maintain that. I'm like, who has time for that? One thing we see very consistently is how Anne equates beauty with goodness. Even though she asks Matthew on their first buggy ride to Green Gables if he would rather be divinely beautiful or dazzlingly clever or angelically good and says she can't decide herself. It's made quite clear throughout the book that Anne really believes that being divinely beautiful is the way to go. She even specifically tells Diana that she'd rather be pretty than clever when Diana says that Charlie Sloan thinks Anne is the smartest girl in school. Anne also frequently equates her looks with her difficulty in being good. She tells Marilla, you'd find it easier to be bad than good if you had red hair. People who haven't red hair don't know what trouble is. Mrs. Thomas told me that God made my hair red on purpose and I've never cared about him since. And she follows this by sharing that Mrs. Thomas thought that Anne was terribly wicked. Again, very easy to see how Anne connects beauty with goodness, or at least the ability to be good, and that her red hair and unconventional looks are part of why she gets into trouble so much and therefore is not wanted. This is very much how she feels about fashionable clothes as well. She reflects to Diana, it is ever so much easier to be good if your clothes are fashionable. At least it is easier for me. I suppose it doesn't make much difference to naturally good people. She goes on to wonder, do you suppose it's wrong for us to think so much about our clothes? Marilla says it's very sinful. And there's something to that point, isn't there? Don't we all behave a little differently when we're dressed up than when we're wearing our sweats? Like it or not, our clothes do say something about us and do influence how we feel about ourselves. Oh, very much so. It's really funny because I rarely wear suits anymore for my job. Even though I'm an attorney, my current workplace is decidedly casual dress, thank goodness. But I do keep a couple suits hanging in my closet for those times when I feel like I need my lawyer armor. Whenever I have some unpleasant task to do and I need some gravitas, I wear a suit. So I can really relate to Anne in terms of feeling like you can be a better person in the right outfit. And I think that's the middle path here between Marilla's view of not thinking about clothing at all and Anne's view in which her clothing is directly responsible for her goodness. Sure. We see that even as Anne grows up and she becomes both more reconciled to her red hair and grows into her looks, she still can't quite grow out of the belief that being beautiful would fix any problems in her life. Which, of course, is quite obvious when she accidentally dyes her hair green going, of course, for a beautiful raven black instead. Yes, it's green, moaned Anne. I thought nothing would be as bad as red hair, but now I know it's 10 times worse to have green hair. Oh, Marilla, you little know how utterly wretched I am. I think Marilla might have had some idea. <laughs> but anyway, Marilla tells Anne that it was a wicked thing to do dyeing her hair. And that goes back to this idea of vanity as a sin that is distracting Anne from focusing on moral goodness instead. Anne replies, I thought that it was worthwhile to be a little wicked to get rid of red hair. I counted the cost, Marilla. Besides, I meant to be extra good in other ways to make up for it. I like how she's doing this sort of like goodness morality accounting around dyeing her hair. <laughs> oh, yeah. She's got the abacus out. 
totally. (laughs) But, you know, here again, beauty and goodness are all bound up together for Anne. Anne frequently talks about how it would be easier to be good and lovable if she were prettier or had more fashionable clothing. And here she thought she was getting a chance to put that into action. Marilla doesn't miss the chance for a lesson here, saying, I hope you'll repent to good purpose and that you've got your eyes open to where your vanity has led you, Anne. Anne really does feel punished by the green hair and subsequent short haircut. I'll never, never look at myself until my hair grows, she exclaimed passionately. Then she suddenly righted the glass. Yes, I will too. I'll do penance for being wicked that way. I'll look at myself every time I come into my room and see how ugly I am. And I won't try to imagine it away either. I never thought I was vain about my hair of all things, but now I know I was, in spite of its being red, because it was so long and thick and curly. I expect something will happen to my nose next. And, you know, I think that scenes like this one are really at the crux of why Anne is such an enduring heroine. I mean, who hasn't done something completely idiotic in pursuit of being more physically attractive? Just like the sheer number of times I've done some absolutely insane crash diet like the Master Cleanse. Ugh! I shudder to think about my younger self and what I put her through, all in the name of pursuing an unattainable beauty standard. Reagan, please tell me you've never done anything quite as absurd as Anne and me to become more beautiful. Well, I definitely cut some unfortunate bangs when I was exactly Anne's age in this scene. Uh (laughs) My mom had very strong opinions about hair. I was in college before I ever got it professionally cut. Before that, my mom just trimmed my long hair herself. And in some ways, it was good. I mean, see the lack of embarrassing perm in my history. But in some ways, it might have been better to make a few more of those mistakes early on in life. My mom didn't let me get bangs, and I so wanted them. So I cut them myself very wispily and, of course, pushed them back in a headband before I went to school and pulled them down as soon as I was on the bus. I also have some pictures of me in eighth grade having just received some makeup for Christmas for the first time with some insane eyeshadow and spackled on foundation. Not to mention all the years I abused my skin with St. Ives apricot grub in the pursuit of clearer skin. Oh my gosh, that stuff was so abrasive and we all used it. It was like sandpaper. I I can't believe we would do that to ourselves. But no, I was convinced that was the only way to get your skin clean. Yes, me too. Although we do see that in the very next chapter, Anne hasn't quite yet given up caring about her hair. As Diana remarks that her hair has gotten darker as it's grown back, Anne flushes with delight and is then able to be persuaded to be the lily maid. And while that event ends disastrously, we do learn that Gilbert thinks her hair is very pretty now. Anne doesn't let herself take the compliment. But I suspect that it has something to do with the start of Anne softening her grudge against Gilbert. Anne dredges up that memory of the carrots incident to hold fast to her anger. And while it works in the short term, it also marks the change in Anne's relationship with Gilbert. And now that we've really parsed through Anne's belief that beauty equals lovable and good and ugliness equals unlovable and wicked, it's so interesting to look at how that specific interaction with Gilbert plays out. He tells her that her hair is pretty now, meaning that to Gilbert, Anne is now lovable and good. But Anne has held on to the belief that Gilbert thought of her as carrots, that is, in Anne's mind, unlovable and wicked, for so long that she can't change her approach to him. And it's interesting to know that this is the day she starts to forgive him. As Anne gets older, she moves away from constantly denigrating her looks, although she's not often convinced she's really pretty, despite being told so. And as she gains self-control and judgment, she has fewer scrapes to blame on her red hair. It is also very clear that as Anne realizes that she is lovable and that she is loved, 
her feelings of insecurity regarding her looks can be lightened. She has a home and friends, and so the fear of rejection, of being left behind, can be let go of, letting Anne view her hair with more humor and acceptance. Towards the end of the book, as she and Marilla reminisce about Anne's girlhood mischief, Anne says, I laugh a little now sometimes when I think what a worry my hair used to be to me, but I don't laugh much because it was very real trouble then. I did suffer terribly over my hair and my freckles. My freckles are really gone and people are nice enough to tell me my hair is auburn now. But I think it's less that Anne's hair has gotten darker or that she's prettier. It's that as Anne has made real academic achievements and forged an identity that has been loved and embraced by so many, she can both see the beauty that was always there and she can separate her worth from how she looks. She has proof of her worth in Matthew's love for her, in her Avery scholarship, in Diana's friendship and Marilla's confidence in her. Of course, the flip side of Anne's vanity is that she so deeply embraces the beauty in the natural world and in other people. Right from Anne's introduction, we see how she revels in the beauty of nature. On her buggy drive with Matthew, Anne is literally struck dumb by the white way of delight, a 500-yard stretch of road called the Avenue that runs under apple trees covered in apple blossoms. Anne leaned back in the buggy, her thin hands clasped before her, her face lifted rapturously to the white splendor above. Anne is keenly observant to the natural world and drinks up beauty wherever she sees it. It's clear that Anne has been starved of beauty and poetry just as much as she has been starved of care and concern in her early life. The next morning, Anne is in a reverie, soaking up the beauty of the view from her Green Gables window. Anne's beauty-loving eyes lingered on it all, taking everything greedily in. She had looked on so many unlovely places in her life, poor child, but this was as lovely as anything she had ever dreamed. In a few sentences, Maud has sketched out Anne's neglect without going into any sort of detail and told us so much about the kind of kid that Anne is. Anne is heartbroken to think of leaving Green Gables, not just because she is yet again unwanted, but because she has already fallen in love with the beauty of Prince Edward Island. When Marilla encourages her to go outside before they head off to Mrs. Spencer's to return Anne, Anne replies, I don't dare go out, said Anne in the tone of a martyr relinquishing all earthly joys. If I can't stay here, there's no sense in my loving Green Gables. And if I go out there and get acquainted with all those trees and flowers and the orchard and the brook, I'll not be able to help loving it. It's hard enough now, so I won't make it any harder. I want to go out so much, but it's better not. There is no use in loving things if you have to be torn from them, is there? And it's so hard to keep from loving things, isn't it? That was why I was so glad when I thought I was going to live here. I thought I'd have so many things to love and nothing to hinder me. You can see again how she ties beauty to being loved. She loves beautiful things and is afraid of losing beautiful things, knowing that she would grieve them. It's clear that the flip side of that is her believing that if she's unwanted and unloved and no one misses her, it must be because she's not beautiful. When Anne is allowed to stay at Green Gables, she quickly blooms by exploring the natural world, coming home with flowers and full of stories and speeches about everything she sees. Throughout the book, Anne continually turns to nature and to beauty for healing, for growth, and for grounding. And this trait of hers allows Maud to indulge her propensity for gorgeous description. 
Throughout the books, there are lovingly rendered details of flowered walks and gardens, windswept hilltops and summery beaches. Anne revels in it, and clearly Maud did as well. We could quote a million passages illustrating this, but here's one of our favorites. Anne lingered there until dusk, liking the peace and calm of the little place, with its poplars whose rustle was like low, friendly speech, and its whispering grasses growing at will among the graves. When she finally left it, and walked down the long hill that sloped to the Lake of Shining Waters, it was past sunset and all of Avonlea lay before her in a dreamlike afterlight, a haunt of ancient peace. There was a freshness in the air, as of a wind that had blown over honey-sweet fields of clover. Home lights twinkled out here and there among the homestead trees. Beyond lay the sea, misty and purple, with its haunting, unceasing murmur. The west was a glory of soft-mingled hues, and the pond reflected them all in still softer shadings. The beauty of it all thrilled Anne's heart, and she gratefully opened the gates of her soul to it. Dear old world, she murmured, you are very lovely, and I am glad to be alive in you. That is just one of my favorite passages. It's so beautiful. I can picture it so clearly in my mind. Yeah, she really paints this amazingly beautiful realistic picture that just thrills you. Yeah. Anne loves bringing nature inside the house, often decorating her room or the table for tea with a minister with blooms or boughs from outside. Practical Marilla doesn't see the sense of this, of course, but it shows how Anne deeply desires to have beauty surrounding her wherever she can. Oh, Marilla, she exclaimed on Saturday morning, coming dancing in with her arms full of gorgeous boughs. I'm so glad I live in a world where there are Octobers. It would be terrible if we just skipped from September to November, wouldn't it? Look at these maple branches. Don't they give you a thrill, several thrills? I'm going to decorate my room with them. Messy things, said Marilla, whose aesthetic sense was not noticeably developed. You clutter up your room entirely too much with out-of-doors stuff, Anne. Bedrooms were made to sleep in. Oh, and dream in too, Marilla. And you know one can dream so much better in a room where there are pretty things. I'm going to put these boughs in the old blue jug and set them on my table. Oh, it's so funny. Just think of Anne's room totally festooned with branches and leaves and flowers and all of these things. And poor Marilla trying to keep clean around it. Sweeping up all of the dried bits that fall. I'm sure. <laughs> After a childhood of so much neglect and austerity, Anne deliberately tries to surround herself with as much beauty as possible. Finally, having a chance to affect her own environment must be liberating in a way, and as soon as she can, Anne is off to bring loveliness into every corner of her life. We see that Marilla gradually resigns herself here as well, letting Anne bit by bit decorate her room and the house, and at the very end, when Anne returns from Queens, Marilla has put a beautiful tea rose in Anne's room to welcome her home. Oh, I love that detail, that like soft bending in Marilla's way to Anne. Me too. Anne is so generous in sharing her love for the outdoor world, often begging her friends to admire sunsets or imploring Marilla to smell armfuls of flowers. It's just one of the tiny ways we see Anne's influence at Green Gables, with Marilla gradually embracing these bits of beauty as well, even though they are not practical. We see Anne's love of beauty in the way she swoons over art, particularly poetry and recitations, as well as music. Anne says of listening to a prima donna sing, Oh, Marilla, it was beyond description. I was so excited I couldn't even talk, so you may know what it was like. I just sat in enraptured silence. 
Madame Selitsky was perfectly beautiful and wore white satin and diamonds. But when she began to sing, I never thought about anything else. Oh, I can't tell you how I felt. But it seemed to me that it could never be hard to be good anymore. I felt like I do when I look up to the stars. And this is not only Anne being overtaken by emotion from the performance. She's also tied being good to this feeling as well. Anne uses beauty as a stand-in for all things good or inspiring. We also often see Anne quoting bits of poetry or being swept up in listening to a recitation. It becomes a spiritual experience for her in a way. Anne also loves fashion. The amethyst brooch, puff sleeves, ribbons, and flounces. And while Marilla views that love as vanity, this tendency also has a purity to it. Anne wishes it for herself, but she also admires it on other people, enjoying beautiful people and fashionable clothes for their own sake. She enjoys seeing people wearing clothes that compliment them and is generous in her praise of others. She tells Diana, your new hat is elegant, Diana, and so becoming. When I saw you come into church last Sunday, my heart swelled with pride to think that you were my dearest friend. Fashionable clothes are aspirational for her, and they're a stand-in for all the love and care she didn't get as a child. Anne thinks she can tell if a child is cared for by what clothes they are wearing. A child with frilly dresses in white and pastel is not a child who has to work as a drudge like Anne did before Green Gables. That child is not wearing worn-out hand-me-downs or clothes from charity bags. And while Marilla's dresses for Anne aren't fashionable initially, we see that eventually both Matthew and Marilla delight in letting Anne wear pretty clothes, realizing that it doesn't spoil her. It's not about playing to her vanity. It's about letting her have something beautiful for herself. It's giving her something she never thought she'd have for herself and letting her be obviously cared for to the outside world. We see that Anne never takes the pretty clothes for granted, and they are a mark for her that she is wanted. I really think often about that turnaround in Marilla. First, her steadfast refusal and deep belief that sensible, practical dresses are morally superior to frills and fashions. And then a grudging acceptance that dressing Anne in simple lines and subdued colors won't change who Anne is. Anne is going to be fanciful and impractical no matter what she wears. And that Marilla doesn't actually want Anne to change. And then eventually leaning in and celebrating Anne's love of finery by indulging her with the things she loves. I think that's often a journey for a lot of parents. They have to go from how they think their children ought to be parented in abstract to discovering who they are, to embracing their interests and loves, even if it's not the parent's style or influence. Oh, that's such an interesting take, Reagan. And I love your point that Anne is going to be fanciful and impractical no matter what she wears. I mean, we saw that right off the bat when she went to church and decorated her hat with flowers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in the way she decorates her room, right? She has this plain room, this little East Gable room. She fills it with boughs of maples and beautiful flowers in spring. I mean, Anne is going to be Anne regardless of what Marilla's values are. And so watching Marilla slowly change her parenting style for the child she's parenting is really beautiful growth. Yes. And it's one of the reasons we really love Marilla for sure. Mm -hmm. We talked a lot about this, I think, in Marilla's episode, but I think that's a journey a lot of parents have to go on. I see it a lot in my practice where we kind of mm -hmm. have to help parents parent the kid that they have and not assign moral value to whether they play sports or whether they're readers or whether they are cheerleaders or a lot of the ideas that parents have about who their kids are before they get old enough to tell us who they are. 
parents have to let go of that and lean into who their kids really are and what they like. And one of the things that I feel like I've observed, not as a parent, but as someone who has friends of who's friends with many parents and who is an aunt is, I guess, maybe the desire to give your kids everything you felt was missing from your childhood, which is such a beautiful thing to want to give your kids. And it totally misses the point that your kids might not want any of it. And it might not work for them. I think exactly. Yeah. You know, if you were a child growing up and what you really, really wanted more than anything was to play basketball and your parents didn't have money for you to join the team, Mm -hmm. you might compensate by signing your kid up for peewee basketball as soon as they're old enough and really push that because that's what you wanted more than anything. Yep. Is that what your child wants? Is that who they are? Maybe, maybe, but maybe not. And you really have to tune in to that and celebrate who they are. Yeah. Anne's love of beauty runs parallel to her imagination. So we will explore it more in depth when we get to a future episode about Anne and imagination. But she spends a great deal of her daydream time inventing beautiful heroines and gorgeous clothes to drape them in. Honestly, Anne, same. (laughs) Anne's love of beauty was something that clearly saved her during her years of neglect. Glimpses of sunset or a struggling Mayflower by the side of the road nourished her sensitive soul when she was given so little other emotional substance. Coming to live at Green Gables, where she is surrounded by beauty, fills her and she never becomes jaded to it. Each beautiful sunset and dusky violet is new to her. While her worship of beauty has the dark side of not just vanity, but of assigning worth only to beautiful things and beautiful people, it also saved her poetic spirit. And Anne's growth through this book lets her balance these two ideas. She can both love beauty and she can let herself be loved regardless of her red hair. While Maud makes it clear that Anne becomes beautiful, if in a somewhat unconventional way as she grows up, the more important growth is in Anne's recognition and trust in her own worth. Seeing herself as beautiful in a broader sense comes from being loved and cherished. And we love that journey for her. Yes, exactly right. Finding that her own internal beauty is so much more meaningful than her external beauty. And because of that, being able to make peace with her appearance. Yes. So in our Birch Path Wander today, let's detour to discuss what beauty standards might have been like for Anne. One thing to note as we discuss this is that the book Anne of Green Gables was set in the late 1870s or early 1880s. Maud is never specific about a year. But the CBC production of Anne of Green Gables that we love is set in the early 1900s. And Kevin Sullivan apparently made a very specific choice to do that regarding the fashions. So we have this switch from more Victorian era fashions in the book to more Edwardian era fashions in the movie. Mm -hmm. For our purposes, we'll stick to talking more about late Victorian era fashion and beauty. One thing that was very important in the Victorian era was the lack of makeup. Queen Victoria was very vocal about looking down on women who wore obvious cosmetics, which were associated with actresses and sex workers at the time. It didn't mean that women didn't secretly adorn themselves with homemade cosmetics, but the emphasis was on natural beauty. The desired look was fair skin, rosy cheeks and lips, and big, bright, sparkly eyes. The emphasis was on clear, fair skin, so freckles like Anne's were often viewed as flaws. Sadly, women who contracted tuberculosis would often have some of these features as the disease progressed. They would become very thin and pale from the lack of appetite and anemia, And they'd have dilated eyes, rosy cheeks, and lips caused by a frequent low-grade fever. 
So there was this weird elevation of this look as beautiful, even as the women were dying. <laughs> so it's, strange. It's talk about wild. This is wild. Yeah. Tuberculosis was originally associated with delicate upper-class women, at least early on before the discovery of bacteria and germ theory. Tuberculosis was initially thought to be caused by bad air, and delicate women were more susceptible to it. Tuberculosis was romanticized during the Victorian era, with the poet John Keats dying of it, and Lord Byron even remarking he wished to waste away of it as well. So women would try to achieve the look of having consumption, as tuberculosis was called. They would put eye drops of lemon juice or belladonna, a poison, in their eyes to dilate them and powder their faces, sometimes with arsenic or lead powder, to make them whiter. It's so interesting the way that tuberculosis was romanticized. And I even think that this was such a prevalent image at the time that it's kind of carried through even to today. In terms of fashion, the earlier Victorian era would be known for enormous hoop skirts. But by the 1870s, skirts were starting to get slimmer, the style less exaggerated, the bustle and the crinoline starting to decrease in size and in usage. Girls Anne's age would be wearing looser fit dresses, not needing the corsetry that grown women were still using. Sometimes those dresses were belted with a sash and girls would generally wear white pinafores over them to protect their dresses. So what's funny about puffed sleeves is during the Victorian era, the puffed sleeves went in and out of fashion several times. But towards the end of the late 1800s, they definitely came back into fashion and they often grew to outrageous proportions. Some puffs were as large as the wearer's entire torso. The sleeves were often stuffed to keep their shape or had elaborate boning inside. And obviously they wouldn't have been practical for everyday wear. So Kelly, I'm going to show you a few pictures of women in puff sleeves from that time period and tell me what you think. What do you see? Okay, so I'm scrolling through the page that you gave me and the first one shows a woman in a dark colored dress. It looks like there's kind of pinstripes, some kind of interesting detail work on the bodice of her dress, but we really do have to talk about her sleeves. They are straight up globe balloons yes hanging right starting at her shoulders going all the way to her elbows I mean they are bigger than her head for sure I yes. think they're probably bigger than the width of her hips I mean they're very very large the purpose of puff sleeves was to make the wearer's waist look very tiny which oh well purpose achieved <laughs> certainly worked right Purpose achieved. Yeah, they they certainly knew what they were doing, playing with proportions here. And this looks like it must have had some kind of other support. Like they're too big to have been puffed up by their own. In order to have a fabric stiff enough to puff that way, the fabric would have to be too heavy to be held up that buoyantly. So there yes. must be something inside holding those sleeves aloft. <laughs> yeah, so they were kind of either stuffed with fabric or mm -hmm. they would kind of make these sort of like little cages that you would wear under your puffed sleeves. Oh, that's wild. To support the shape. Yeah. Okay. Scrolling down to the next one. This dress is very, very pretty. So she's got like a little half jacket over her dress. It looks like, cause you can see sort of the material of her shirt underneath. And then the jacket has kind of an interesting cutouts around it. And these sleeves are also quite large. The puffs are quite large, but they only go down a about, they don't go all the way down to her elbow. So it's most of her upper arm, but not all of them. And they're quite big, but like a little bit more refined, I think. I'm actually really taken by this, the details on this woman's dress. I mean, the just the amount of work that it must have done to put this together with all these different little 
cutouts and trim and details and everything. And then, of course, the amount of fabric involved in these sleeves. My goodness. Yes. And so what you can see with some of these puffed sleeves is that some of them sort of tighten around the elbow and then are tight from the elbow to the wrist. Sometimes they would be short, like they would end kind of at the elbow. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you would get kind of in later years, a puff that would be almost full to the elbow, but maybe not quite as like round and voluminous. So the, the shape of the puffed sleeves would kind of change over various years as they came in and out of fashion, kind of ballooning in size and then getting smaller. Yeah, this picture is definitely like that higher rounder puff as opposed to like a full upper arm puff. Yeah. But it's definitely, I mean, certainly wider than her hips. I would say like twice as wide as her shoulders. It really makes the top of her torso probably twice as wide as it is ordinarily. Yeah. So in Anne of Green Gables, there's a point where Marilla jokes about about girls not being able to fit through doorways. They're getting so big. And that was actually a thing that happened in some of the more outrageous, extravagant puffed sleeves is there definitely times where, yes, you could not fit through the width of the doorway. Yeah, I that makes sense. That makes perfect sense to me. So moving down a little bit, now here's a woman wearing um, sort of a puffed sleeve shirtwaist, it looks like, because it's just the top portion of her dress. These sleeves are, I think, more that longer puff that you were talking mm-hmm. about, where it looks like the puff is continuing all the way down toward her elbow. And although they're still very puffy, they're not quite the like high balloon, super circular globe look. Yeah. So the puffs kind of changed over time, which was very interesting. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure people who are very into historical fashion would be able to be very specific about being able to tell which year some of these pictures were based on the type of puffed sleeve. But in either way, you can kind of see why Anne is drawn to this extravagant, very special look. This is not an everyday kind of look. No, I mean, you can you can tell that every single one of these dresses that I've looked at, this is an occasion look, right? Like no one's washing dishes wearing these. Right. It would be very hard to do practical things. And then the other thing about these slightly longer puff sleeves that I'm looking at that's making me think of is they almost look like a bustle, right, mm-hmm. in the way that they're shaped. So it's like two little bustles on each arm, kind of hearkening back to that idea of playing with proportions so that way the waist looks smaller by exaggerating the size of the rear and the the arms. Absolutely. So anyway, there's a little trip down puffed sleeve lane. For you. These are wild. See. Now yeah. I'm just scrolling through all of them. Oh, here's one that's all just ruffles and flounces. So on top of the puff sleeves, she's also got at least six layers of ruffles on top of them. So they're even bigger. Yeah. For sure, she was wearing cages under her arms. Wow, these are really something. So there you all go, right. listeners. If you get a chance, Google Victorian era puffed sleeves. You will be astounded by some of the, the pictures that come up. And it makes me think, you know, we have... I think in current fashion experienced a little bit of a resurgence for if not fully puff sleeves and like maybe like a more decorative sleeve or a balloon sleeve or whatever, but certainly nothing that even approaches these heights. (laughs) No, for sure. So the other thing that was often influential is regarding hairstyles. So the illustrations of Charles Gibson. So he made a lot of illustrations of young women during the late 19th century into the early 20th century. And the Gibson girl kind of came to personify female beauty at this time. So that would have just been coming into fashion as Anne was growing into adulthood. 
And the Gibson girl was famous for having these iconic hairstyles of hair piled high on the head in a pompadour or bouffant type style, very loose, showing kind of like how much hair the wearer had. And of course, wasn't yet old enough to put her hair up. Girls wore it down until they were about 16, signaling the shift from girlhood to womanhood. And girls would wear their hair loose or in long braids. And long hair was very much the standard. So Anne's short haircut was extra humiliating. So personally, it's always hard for me to kind of wrap my mind around all of the clothing details that Anne rhapsodizes about, all of the tucks and flounces that she discusses in detail, but I do love her passion for describing them. Oh, that's interesting to me because you are, so listeners, Reagan is a sewer and a very good one. And I know that you think a lot about design and things like that. So I'm, I'm surprised that that's not something that kind of instantly comes up for you when, you, when you're reading. Well, let me tell you, vastly different. Like this, yeah. the kind of styles here are vastly different from the kind of clothes that I sew for my daughter. Yeah. Nowhere, nowhere close. The amount of pin tucks and flounces, sure, that sure, is not sure. the kind of sewing <laughs> I like to do. That is very detailed. <laughs> so we've certainly talked a lot about puffed sleeves in this episode, but let's take a little moment to talk about our favorite puffed sleeve moments from this episode, or rather a moment that we love just for it being a little extra. So mine is when Anne is waxing on about finding Mayflowers to Marilla. She says, I am so sorry for people who live in lands where there are no Mayflowers. Mm. Diana says, Perhaps they have something better, but there couldn't be anything better than Mayflowers, could there, Marilla? And Diana says, if they don't know what they are like, then they don't miss them. But I think that's the saddest thing of all. I think it would be tragic, Marilla, not to know what Mayflowers are like and not to miss them. I love that Anne feels so terrible for people who don't know what Mayflowers are. (laughs) They fill her soul so specifically that she is sure that other people must have something missing in their lives that they just can't fathom for the lack of Mayflowers. (laughs) Wait, what are Mayflowers? Are they like... Good question. I think they're very small, delicate, pink and white flowers. Yeah. Yeah. And they bloom for a very short period of time in, I think places where they have more specifically spring than here in Southern California. Okay. So we are those people that Anne is sad about who don't even know what Mayflowers are. We have holes in our souls that we don't even know. We don't even understand what's missing. Oh, (laughs) I'm looking at a picture right now. And yeah, you're right. They do kind of remind me of maybe like a little like lilies of the valley. You know what they actually look like to me is they look a little like jasmine, right? Oh, Anne okay. wouldn't have had jasmine where she is, but we have plenty of it where we are. So maybe Anne has a little jasmine-shaped hole in her soul that she doesn't know about. Exactly. And if you have smelled night blooming jasmine on a walk on a Southern mm-hmm. California spring evening, that also really fills your soul. Definitely. So when discussing Anne's preoccupation with beauty, with how people and things in the world look, it is so vital to have Marilla as that counterpoint, like we discussed, right? And I'm really glad she's here to nudge us along the right path because ultimately Marilla is right. Beauty doesn't equal moral superiority. And placing too much emphasis on how something or someone looks means that we might miss what lies beneath. So it is. It's a good lesson for Anne. It's a good lesson for all of us. But the thing about Marilla is, like Anne, she She can carry a good idea too far. So this quote about Marilla really makes me laugh. Here sat Marilla Cuthbert, when she sat at all, always slightly distrustful of sunshine, which seemed to her too dancing and irresponsible a thing for a world which was meant to be taken seriously. (laughs) 
<laughs> Marilla, it's sunshine. It's okay to enjoy the sunshine, Marilla. <laughs> Beautiful or not. Oh, Marilla. <laughs> See, that's a good example of why she needed Anne. They did. They need each other. Yep. Well, as we wind up this episode, let's be inspired by our Anne girl. I have two inspirations because I couldn't, I couldn't pick. Great. So the first one is, this is a modern inspired by Anne, but I think it feels very relevant. Any girl of the 80s or 90s will be excited to know that caboodles are back. (laughs) The the plastic organizers that open up with a mirror and have all the little compartments. So for the holidays, I bought my 10-year-old daughter one. She had been coveting a friend's caboodles that she spied backstage during the fall musical. So I got her one. I filled it with some makeup brushes and hair ties and a palette of sparkly eyeshadows and lip gloss. And I know Marilla would be appalled. Oh, yes. But you know that if Anne was a modern girl, she would be thrilled with this gift. And since Alice has been interested in makeup since she did the musical, I think it's fun for her to play with it. I don't want it to feel serious for her. And I don't want her to associate her looks with her worth, but I don't think she does. I do want her to feel free to express herself in any way that interests her. And this is something she's curious about. As Marilla found out, forbidding something just heightens its allure. She was so thrilled with it. And it's just as fun as I remember from my own childhood. Yeah. And a little behind the scenes for our listeners, Alice came on the at the beginning of our podcast and we were setting up and she showed off her new makeup stylings to me, which included bright blue glittery eyeshadow. Oh, yes. And yesterday she put on, uh, we're on uh, vacation at the moment. So yesterday she wore some purple sparkly eyeshadow and was very delighted with it. (laughs) But I also have a second inspired by recommendation. This would have been good for Anne to listen to as she was growing up. I want to recommend two podcasts that can help everyone start to unpack the way that society has conditioned us regarding worth and appearance. I absolutely cannot recommend Maintenance Phase with Michael Hobbs and Aubrey Gordon and Burnt Toast by Virginia Soul Smith highly enough. They have really been helping me do the work of unpacking the way that I have thought about appearance and thought about weight and thought about what we have determined to be morally good in some really interesting and profoundly meaningful ways. So I highly recommend both Maintenance Phase and Burnt Toast for our listeners to listen to when you're not listening to us, of course. (laughs) Yeah, those are those are both great recommendations, Reagan. What do you have, Cal? For mine, I have actually been meaning to recommend this one forever. And it just, for whatever reason, I hadn't gotten around to it yet. So there's a great website. If you're looking for like bookish gifts or bookish things for you, (laughs) you know. That's right. You can buy them for yourself. Yes, you can buy them for yourself. Absolutely. I love this website called Storia Arts. Uh, Storia is S-T-O-R-I-A, Storia Arts, because they have these great literary themed scarves and blankets and other sort of accessory and apparel items. They do have some Anne of Green Gables inspired things like these very cute sage green fingerless writing gloves with the carrot scene printed on them. And then this company also makes these beautiful items inspired by lots of books, classics like Pride and Prejudice to 
more sort of contemporary novels like The Night Circus. And I think one of the things they do especially well are their baby gifts. They have these really sweet little swaddling blankets and baby beanies and all those cute little things that you want for a newborn with pictures and quotes from books like Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan and The Velveteen Rabbit. Kel, do you remember you gave me an Anne of Green Gables scarf from them? A green one. I think I did. Yes. Yes. I love it. Oh, yay. No, their their things are so, so, so pretty, I feel like. And they also, I was looking on their website before we started recording, they also seem to have partnered with a candle company. So now they all have also have literary inspired candles. If you have a bookish person on your coming up for some sort of gifting opportunity, like a birthday or something like that, this is a great place to start. Or if you just want to get a special treat for yourself, love this company. And so that is S-T-O-R-I-A-R-T-S dot com. Dot com. Well, thank you all so much for joining us, Kindred Spirits. Please make sure you're following us wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out so other Kindred Spirits can find us. You can also follow us on Instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub. So join us next episode in two weeks as we further explore Anne and her imagination. All right. Thank you, everyone. And goodbye.